Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, and joining me here is MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. Matt, hello. Since the last time we spoke, we have had three teams advance to the championship series. We know that the Astros play the Yankees. We know that the Dodgers will play somebody. As we tape this, we are awaiting the final game of the Cubs national series. And it's, I don't know, the most exciting playoffs I think I've watched in years. I I, I get it. We know we're a little biased in this sense, but um, this has been a, a ton of fun. Like every game has been interesting. I yeah, think. it makes up September was was pretty lame by September standards. There wasn't really that great excitement with last weekend, but October's making up for it. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be in Boston for games three and four of the uh, Red Sox Astros se- series, and I could say with some level of I I don't want to make the proclamation def- definitive proclamation, but I think Game Four was considering the stakes the craziest game i've ever seen in person so that was a game where it started to rain near the end obviously that's the game that finished everything your view was you were in the press box in the, uh, yes i was actually in the press box good view it was a game where um where i'll put it this way a ball girl interfered with the play and it was like only like and it like a runner had to there was like a disagreement a runner had to be sent back a base it was like only like the seventh craziest thing that happened in the game i'm pretty sure i already forgot that happened until you brought it up because you're right there was like a million different things that happened uh in that game but the Red Sox are out. Uh, we're not going to talk about the Red Sox anymore. The Indians are out. And so we're going to start with what we know. And what we know is going to be the American League Championship Series, Astros and Yankees. And I think that's going to be really fascinating because the, the Astros, I think, uh, were expected to be there. I, I picked them to win the American League this year. And I think the Yankees, I, I don't buy totally into the no one believed in us narrative because I think people thought they'd be decent, but obviously they're a little bit ahead of schedule. And they're, I guess of any team, they're better built for October than they're built for the regular season, if that makes any sense. Oh, right? for sure. Because they have this bullpen. Yeah, for sure. They, they, there's, there's no question. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I sort of saw them as a probably, you know, an 80-85 win team, but then you, th- like, no no one, and I mean no one, expected Aaron Judge to be a seven-win player. It's. It, I think it's three different things. Number one is exactly what you said. Number two is uh, Luis Severino had a much better year than people give him credit for. And number three, in April, the team you were looking at did not have Todd Frazier or David Robertson or Tommy Conley. Like, this is a team that—or Chad Green. Nobody knew he was there, but obviously he was not like the Chad Green he is now. It's just a very different team than it was. Um, so they're going to start off on Friday night, and the one thing we know is that they are going to face Dallas Keuchel in Game 1. And I think Dallas Keuchel is a really, really interesting guy. Obviously, he's been an ace, uh, but this game will take place— in Houston. And for years, I think, I don't know, the, the thought, and I guess the data until recently backed this up, is that Houston was a really big hitters park, right? Because left field is so super short, and right field is so super short. Now, obviously, center field was deep uh, until they, it's still deep, but they removed House Hill. But what's really interesting is that's not really how it's played this year. And it's especially not if you look at Dallas Keuchel's home road splits. They're, they're monstrous. Home, a 226 ERA, a road, a 353 ERA. I mean, that's not bad, but I mean, that's over a run of difference. It's not really what you'd expect from a ballpark like that. It's been a very interesting year in Houston, I think. Well, one thing about the perception of Minute Made, I think, goes back to when it opened. Because when it opened, the Astros were coming from the Astrodome, which was a notorious pitcher's park. And it happened in an era when they had a lot of outstanding offensive players so immediately these guys immediately switched over to Minute Maid and were putting up raw numbers that were and it was the high offensive era so immediately you're seeing raw numbers Bagwell Biggio Richard Hidalgo had a 44 home run sure season, did had a 44 home run season I think it was the first year at Minute Maid if I'm, uh, it's close anyway yeah anyway so I think like so immediately people are like oh hitters park but like as we've seen a lot of parks just because and we've talked about Minute Maid before you get a lot of quote unquote cheap home runs there, but it's actually pretty deep to center field. So like even though there's like one type of batted ball that is significantly aided there, there's other factors at play that kind of make it 
fairly neutral, or in this case, maybe maybe favor the pitchers. Yeah, and it's not just Keuchel. Uh, Lance McCullers is a huge home road split, and then on the other side, it's the opposite for Altuve. Like he's pretty good at home. He's ridiculous on the road. And I have a theory that is completely not backed up by data that when they change Tiles Hill, they change the batter's eye, and that's made it slightly harder for people to square it up. I can't back that up. I just think it's a fun theory. Um, but anyway, we got to look at Dallas Keuchel. Like, I, I'm more interested in knowing. You know, is it that he's extra good at home or is that he's a little more uh, rough off on, on the road? And I wasn't really expecting, I think, what I found in the numbers, right? If you looked at the numbers, the breakdown here, uh, it's essentially the same strikeouts, walks, ground ball rate, home in the road. That, that's not really changed at all. Um, what's interesting here is that if you look at his expected weighted on base average, which the major league average is about 320, at home, it's it's 264. I mean, that's really, really good. On the road, it's 292. So it's not like he's, you know, above average or anything like that, uh, you know, either side. He's just, I don't know, maybe a little overperforming at home and a little underperforming on the road. It seems to me like the whole thing here is just there's a few more home runs on the road. Yeah, and I was I was looking at his spray charts to kind of like pinpoint it. And like he gave up four home runs at home this year and 11 on the road. And basically all, all the home runs at home were to the Crawford boxes. I think three were the Crawford boxes. One was uh, to center. And on the road, he gave up a bunch to center and a bunch to right. He did, literally did not give a home run home run to right field at home this year. I, I can't wait for like everybody to hear you say that, and then it happened like within the first two batters of the game. Didy Gregorius, it's going to be great. Book it. Didi Gregorius is like he <laughs> mastered hitting three hundred and eighty foot fly balls to right field. He has capitalized that. He's like catered his power swing in Yankee Stadium, and it has paid off in a big way. Most notably last night, actually. In, in Cleveland, where he hit two classic Yankee Stadium-style home runs, basically like five rows deep, almost like down the right field line. Didi Gregorius, who was once involved in a trade for Robbie Ray, which eventually ended up being one of the more fascinating trades ever. Um, but I, I think this is interesting at Keiko. So if you look at home and road, right? Home, 236 weighted on base, which is fantastic. Uh, road, 305 weighted on base, which is slightly above average, right? But this includes all batted balls. And at home, he's given up uh, 0.5 home runs per nine, and on the road, 1.34 home runs per nine. So I, I thought that was interesting. I wanted to know, is it just about home runs? And it kind of feels like it is. So I just looked at all of his uh, non-home runs, right? At home, his expected batting average is 212. And on the road, his expected batting average is 209. These are on balls that are not home runs. Every other kind of ball. Uh, his expected weighted on base at home is 211. Expected weighted on base on the road, 212. These are basically all identical numbers. So it seems to me, with the exception of like the eight or so balls that uh, turned into home runs on the road, he really has been the same pitcher, give or take. And I guess in a, in a weird, I mean, maybe that should actually, you know, on one hand, if you're an Astros fan, maybe it's, it sounds like we're saying like, oh, don't don't expect him necessarily to dominate in game one. No, you should, because he'll be at home. Yeah, at home. But my point is like, maybe it's actually, he's just the guy. So my point is that like, when he comes back in game five, don't be discouraged. Right. That's that's more what I'm saying. Like, if he pitches the second time in the series, it will likely be on the road. And don't let the narrative of, oh, he's much better at home fool you, because like, the deeper batted ball numbers suggest he's the same guy, which is... An elite pitcher. Right. And then it's interesting, on the other side, the Yankees have Masahiro Tanaka, who's got a, kind of a similar thing, except to a much larger degree. Uh, at home is ERA this year, 322. On the road, 648. Now, right on its face, that's bizarre to me, because Yankee Stadium, it isn't exactly the kind of place you'd expect a guy to have much better numbers. I mean, we talked about short porches. That's the right field porch at Yankee Stadium. Uh, at, at this moment, we don't know what the Yankees' rotation is going to be. My assumption is, because they did this in the last series, they will try to keep him until they, they go back home. I think it's going to be probably Gray uh, and maybe Severino the first two games, and then him in Game 3 at home, right? We don't yeah, know I mean, yet. But... I, think, I think it's that would be my guess, because Severino actually would be on, if he pitches on Saturday, that's full rest. And then Gray's hasn't, you know, Gray's would be full rest to start in Game 1. They haven't announced it yet. I think that's exactly what they're going to do. And 
uh, I think it's crazy, and I'll tell you. You think it's crazy? I think it's crazy. Okay. I well, do you want to do you want to explain that why now, or should we look at Snuka's numbers? First? Well, it's we'll go through the numbers, and, it, and it's it's as fluky as it could possibly get. And the way we know this is because last year at home, his ERA was 386, and on the road he was 234. So a complete reversal well, of what it is this year. Yeah, yeah. A single year like platoon splits in anything. I, I we were talked about this with the Red Sox where uh, initially they didn't have Chris Young on their roster. Chris Young destroys lefties except for this year he didn't, and then that kind of you know got him off the roster. I agree with you. Single year platoon splits are never really that meaningful, but it does seem like the Yankees are putting some value into it because they did push him off in the first years, and they're probably gonna again here. I mean the other. I mean to be fair, the other factor is. And this works in the Yankees' favor. Is reasonably speaking, I think you could say that Severino, Gray, and Tanaka are within the same like bucket of like quality of pitchers. Yes, there's differences. I think at his best, Severino is probably the best of what he's of what we've seen this season. At at their best, Severino's probably been consistently you know, number one of those three. But if they're all sort of equal on equal rest, like you could sort of order them anyway, and probably not materially affect your, your chances of winning the series. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's interesting to dig into his numbers a little deeper. Um, for, it's a big thing is about strikeouts, which I find really interesting. He's got almost a 30% strikeout rate at home and just a 22% strikeout rate on the road. I don't have a good answer as to why that is. That's obviously not anything to do with the uh, short porch or anything like that. That's just making contact. Uh, he's got a 7% walk rate on the road and only a 4% walk rate at home. So right away, you know, he's a better pitcher before the bat ever touches the ball at home, at least for this year, which I find really interesting. And uh, that's sort of manifests itself a little bit when you get into expected weighted on base at home 300 which is really good uh road 321 which is that's about average right i mean that is not what you expect to lead to a 648 era so uh you know whether that's bad luck i mean clearly it's home runs to some extent because he's actually allowed a 372 weighted on base on the road so some of those balls have gone out um but yeah it's, it's a big enough difference where i at least understand why they're doing this as you said it's not like they're putting him behind or ahead of clearly you know differently talented pitchers yeah so i mean in, in, in the grand scheme of things I guess it makes sense when we go to, to pitching game three, but there's so much of this narrative about like he's a different pitcher at home and road where I'm not sure I actually really, really buy it. And, you know, the Yankees are a smart club. We can tell that Brian Cashman knows what he's doing. He's basically managed to rebuild a team without actually ever having to rebuild and deserves a lot of credit for that. But, um, you know, I, I just more about trying to get, get, get in front of the whole, like, oh, he's a different guy at home. It just seems sort of silly. I agree with that. Now, the real question, I think, uh, is going to be, what happens to Aaron Judge? Aaron Judge has had a pretty rotten postseason so far. I and mean, that's not entirely true. He was pretty good in the wild card game, right? But against Cleveland, 24 plate appearances, 16 strikeouts, one one hit. That is that is a really, really poor week. Now, to be fair, he did rob a Francisco Lindor home run, so it's not like he had no effect. And the one hit was a double, uh, I believe, right? A double? That yeah, was, it, was a, it was an RBI double and a rally in game... Uh... I want to say game four. Was yeah. It, yeah. So it's not like he wasn't there at all, but um, that's not exactly what you'd expect. Now, I found this really interesting. If you were watching the games, you noticed that he was just getting attacked by curveballs. In the regular season, uh, he saw almost 53% fastballs, which I'm four-seamer, two-seamer, and sinking fastball. 52% in the regular season. In the postseason, just under 32%. So it's very clearly a different kind of approach against him. And that makes sense. But my question is... Is that very much because that's what Cleveland can do? I mean, Trevor Bauer, we know, throws a ton of curveballs, obviously. Corey Kluber throws a ton of curveballs. But the Astros aren't necessarily built that way, the exception of Lance McCullers, who throws almost 50% curveballs. But I don't actually think he's going to get a start, most likely. He might come in relief. He might be the designated attack Aaron Judge guy. Um, 
But, you know, Dallas Keuchel doesn't really throw a curveball. You know, he throws sinkers, and then he'll throw in a change and a slider. And that's the other thing is Cleveland did not have any lefty starters, and Dallas Keuchel is a lefty starter. I feel like almost by definition, Aaron Judge has to be better this time around, and, and there's some evidence behind that. I, and I think that uh, Keuchel is, is a good matchup for him in the sense that, like, for the reason he, is, he doesn't throw a big curveball. He's a lefty who basically works off his fastball, and he works down and away in the zone, and Judge has shown he has a lot of power going to the opposite field, and he's not exactly like a true swing-and-miss pitcher in like the classic modern sense of the term. So I'm very, I think this is actually a good matchup for Judge to maybe kind of to, to barrel up the ball and you know, maybe use that right field. Maybe he will be the first person to hit the right, hit a right field home run off of Dallas Keuchel this year. Maybe so. I, I said the one matchup I do like there for uh, Houston is Charlie Morton, who I don't think ever gets the credit he deserves because, I mean, you look at him, he's got that, that tailing two-seamer at 95 miles an hour and a very, very high-spin curveball over 3,000 RPM sometime. He seems like the kind of guy who could tie up Aaron Judge. So I'm hoping to see that matchup at some point. He's probably going to be their fourth starter, uh, I would think, behind Verlander, Keuchel, and Peacock. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about with the Astros. Um, we have to, I think, talk for a minute about Alex Bregman, who got off to a little bit of a slow start this year, is basically league average, and then had a fantastic second half, um, but for somewhat confusing reasons. And, uh, you know, obviously he had a huge hit in the American League Division Series. Uh, he hit a home run off of Chris Sale in the game that we were just talking about that you were at at Fenway Park. Let's listen to that real quick. And Bregman hits it high in the air and deep to left field. And that ball is gone! Over the monster and onto the monster seats! That's a game-tying home run for Alex Bregman! 3-3! Three to three. So, he's only 23 years old, but that's already like the biggest hit of his life. And he actually hit a home run off Chris Sale in Game 1 of that series, too. So he, also, in yes. In the first inning of Game 1, he hits a home run, and then Sale comes in relief, has thrown four scoreless innings, they bring him back out. Bregman ties the game in the eighth with a home run of the Green Monster. Uh, pretty cool moment. Yeah, so as we were talking about this morning, uh, Bregman has really like impressed. I think all of us, uh, you know, later in the season in the first half, uh, you know, three thirty two weighted on base. Second half, three eighty five weighted on base. That is a line of three fifteen, three sixty seven on base, five thirty six slugging percentage. So you think to yourself, well, that that's awesome. That's a that's a young kid who's kind of you know he's the number two overall pick. He's really growing into his talent. And here's what the numbers are that we've always expected. But it was a little confusing when we dug into this a little bit because we thought that he would just show like this hugely improved quality of contact. And he didn't. His expected weighted on base was essentially identical in both halves. Um, but obviously, he far outperformed that in the second half. And even his hard hit rate, 34% in the first half, 35% in the second half. So why is that? It's interesting. And I think I found a couple of reasons. The first is simply making more contact, 17% strikeout rate in the first half, 14 and That's not a huge difference, but it's something. More balls in play. And I think I, I, it's interesting that his pull rate has changed. In the first half, he was only pulling 39% of his batted balls. That's up to 46% in the second half. Again, not huge numbers. But if you look at his uh, his production, he's so much better pulling the ball. He's got a 434 weighted on base when he pulls, 340 to the center, 335 to right field. So put the ball in play more, pull the ball more. I guess that works for him, right? I mean, and the, the two tangible examples, those home runs off sale, both dead pull. Right, um, right, right. Just, you know, rockets over... In the Crawford boxes and over uh, the Green Monster. Yeah, so it's really interesting that you know we talk about skill and quality of contact all the time, and that, I think that's important. Like that's you can't fake those things, but it's also you know there's more to it in terms of actual real world production. This is where your ballpark you know makes a big difference, and this is where the direction makes a big difference sometimes. Now I don't know if people have noticed uh, the Astros this year. I mean, they had the best offense in baseball. I think that's pretty clear. They they led in runs and batting average and OBP and slugging percentage, second in home runs. They had the fewest strikeouts. I mean, they, they did everything great. They were, uh, without hyperbole, one of the best offenses ever, right? I mean, we can say that without sounding crazy. 
If you look at uh, non non pitchers, so just the hitters, weighted runs created plus since 1920. That's the Liebel era. There are over 2,100 team seasons, and they are tied for 10th. They had a 122 weighted runs created plus, and that is tied for the 10th best in nearly a century of baseball. And if you look at the teams above them, there's like six different Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Yankees entries. There's the 1976 Big Red Machine from the Reds. I mean, the, the 53 Snyder, Robinson, Brooklyn Dodgers. I mean, these are the all-time great teams here. And that's, I mean, that speaks even more to how great they are because it's that much harder to dominate in this era than it was then when there was still the reserve clause. Right. And a lot of these teams were pre-integration, you know, pre-expansion. Like, this, the only team above them since the divisional era began is the 1976 Reds, the big red machine. That's the only arguably team. the greatest team of all time. <laughs> That's the only team above them. Um, and then before that, you have to go back. Then there's the 65 Reds and it's, it's a, Mike wrote about this yesterday. You can find his piece on the site. So it has, it has the full list. I will not run it down, but the point is simply that like, there's no one else from recent history in there in, in that conversation. Right. And you, you don't get there by accident. I mean, these, every single one of these teams probably has three different Hall of Famers on them. And I, what I found interesting is um, it's not just like one or two guys. Yeah, Altuve is great. He might be the MVP. Uh, the Astros had nine different players who had an OPS plus of at least 100. And I don't love OPS plus any more than you do, but it was the easiest one to find. That's that's depth right there, right? That's an entire lineup of guys who have 300 plate appearances who are league average or better. That's the second most of all time. Two teams had 10, uh, and they're two random teams, the 1983 Yankees and the 2009 Angels, but that's that's up and down. That is, you cannot find an easy out in that lineup. And I will say, for Matt, that does not include Jake Marisnik, who did not reach 300 plate appearances, but who had a very good year himself. Right? I mean, this is there's no easy outs in this lineup except for like Carlos Beltran, who didn't have a great year. But otherwise, this is this is dominant. I mean, it was ridiculous against the Red Sox. Granted, with David Price out, the rotation isn't particularly good. But in a four game series, Red Sox starting pitchers threw 11 and a third innings. Right. Total. And this is with Chris Sale, who like is going to be number two in the Cy Young voting this year. And it's you know this is spilled over into the postseason. And I I will you know sound the giant small sample size alert here because we're talking about postseason numbers. So far, the Astros having the best offensive postseason in history. And I know we're all talking about like four games here, uh, but if you look at there are 414 teams who have ever had 100 postseason plate appearances. The Astros so far are the best, and that's not going to last. Probably, but it's not a fluke either. I mean, this is a team that was the best offensive baseball season long uh, for a very good reason. Yeah, no, it's they're they're fun to watch, and I think Bregman is part of the reason why maybe they snuck up on some people because I think you know over the course of the season he sort of evolved into a into an elite hitter, and so you sort of throw him to the mix already with Correa's filing back and healthy, and Altuve and Springer, and it's okay. and Marwin Gonzalez. Marwin Gonzalez, <laughs> it's. It's a re- it's a relentless relentless lineup. Yeah, and that's why I think I've been so excited about this postseason because no matter who they end up playing, if they beat the Yankees, if they don't, if they get to the World Series, they're so much fun to watch. Like this is going to be a, a fantastic Final Four. So let's briefly look at the National League. We don't want to talk too much about the Cubs and Nats because we don't know who's going to advance in a couple hours from now. But there are two quick things we wanted to talk about uh, from what was a really interesting. Game four, and this was obviously the whole Steven Strasburg, is he sick? Is he not sick? Is he going to start? And then, of course, he was fantastic. I don't think I've ever seen him look that good. Uh, he threw 32 change-ups, and he got 15 swinging strikes and uh, just two balls in play. And the average exit velocity on those two balls in play, 49 miles an hour. His change-up, I think, he threw some of the best change-ups I've ever seen. He already has like the best change-up in baseball. He's uh, 50% whiff rate on his change-up this year was the third best behind Willie Peralta, for some reason, and Felipe Rivero, who I love Felipe Rivero. His 160 expected weighted on base on the changeup, second best behind A.J. Ramos. You'll notice these are relievers, not a starters. So he has the best starter changeup in baseball. I'm comfortable in saying that. If you go, if you can, go back and look at the uh, the strike three he got to Ben Zobrist 
swing strike. It was ridiculous. On, it was it was like a floating. <laughs> it was literally the, like a Bugs Bunny changeup. It was like floating, and then it just dropped. Uh, the other play I wanted to talk about in this game is early on in the game, it was still, uh, I believe it was still scoreless, right? Or have the Nationals gone ahead yet? I don't remember. I think it was still scoreless. Addison Russell comes up, and he gets a pretty nice swing on a ball, and it sure looked like it might have gone out, and that's what we're going to listen to. Let's take a quick look. Addison Russell drives one in the air, deep left field. Back is worth near the fence, makes the catch. Addison Russell just missed a long ball. He drove it to deep left center. Worth caught it with his back up against the vines. It didn't go out, obviously, because a couple of reasons. Part of it was just it was a horrible day in Chicago, right? <laughs> like the wind, yeah, it was it was it, it was, was ugly. Gray, it was rainy, it was dreary. But it was also he didn't hit the ball as hard as it looked. I mean, 96 miles an hour off the bat. It's it's a hard hit ball, but it's not 110, right? So I I, I think if you uh, you saw it visually you're like oh that's going to go out and the rain kept it in but i'm not actually sure that's the right story 96 miles an hour off the bat and 30 degrees of launch angle that ball's a home run 20 percent of the time right 21 percent of the time it's only a hit 35 percent of the time like certainly in the right conditions in wrigley if, if it's warm if the wind if the, the wind is blown out that ball leaves no doubt but i don't look at that as a no doubt home run that got kept in by the weather Right. Yeah, and the, on that specific one, I think the, pr- the projected distance was like 350 plus feet. So, like, also if you you know in certain parks, if you pull that down the line, Houston, for example, right. that's it's a home run, and it, not only is it a home run, it's it's 10 rows deep, and it looks looks kind of like a blast. But in this case, it was it was hit at that sort of it was hit hard, and it was hit just sort of at that perfect home run launch angle. It was one of those just like off the bat, it really looked like it was hit much harder. It was very deceptive. Yeah, exactly right. And it just 96 miles an hour is it's a hard hit, but it's not crushed. You know, this is not Giancarlo Stanton-esque here. Yeah, and this, you know, we see, we saw, we've saw seen this, uh, Wrigley is sort of famous for this because of the wind and often the weird conditions. We saw, you know, we've talked about it before probably maybe five times on this podcast. <laughs> if Miss uh, Andre Ethier home uh, run yes. from game one of the NLCS last year, which was like 98 degrees, 98 miles per hour, like a 40 degree, 39 degree launch angle. That was like the only time all year it went out. You know, it was, so it's. I just, I just realized that if the Cubs win tonight, we could see Andre Ethier back in Wrigley Field doing the exact same thing. And let's talk about the Dodgers for a second. We know that the Dodgers have moved on. Uh, they beat the Diamondbacks pretty handily, which, uh, you know, between the Dodgers and the, the Indians, maybe we can stop talking about momentum forever because the Dodgers kind of stumbled. Mike, that's that's, I mean, that's not going to happen. I know it's not going to happen, but can I can I at least say it's going to happen? <laughs> you know, the, the Diamondbacks beat the Dodgers in the regular season this year. Uh, it went 11-8. and eight. The Yankees were, I think, 2-5 and five against the Indians. None of these things actually matter. Uh, but no, for the, the, the Yankees are actually the extreme example of momentum because not only the Indians go into the playoffs – on a dominant stretch, you know, winning like 30 of 35 or like 35 of 40 or whatever. But then they went and beat the Yankees in the first two games, the second of which was an absolute crushing loss for the Yankees in which they was, blew, what, a eight, it was, three lead? That was a gift. I mean, yeah. that was that was the uh, the no review game, right? Like, like, basically, if there was any, ever any momentum, it was a – the Indians were a, a Mack truck going downhill on the interstate – <laughs> and they went and lost three straight games. So momentum literally does not matter. It does not matter. But we know that the Dodgers are there. And uh, we're going to focus on them since we don't know who they're going to be playing. But we know that they've made it to the NLCS. And the one thing we know is that in game one, Clayton Kershaw is going to start. And Clayton Kershaw started in game one of the NLDS against Arizona. He was pretty good. He looked actually pretty dominant early uh, and then faded a little bit. And he was good enough to win. 
but he was not good enough to shake the ongoing narrative of, you know, can he perform in the playoffs, which, you know, there's some, uh, listen, he's had some terrible starts. There's no doubt about that. He's also had some great starts yeah. that I think people kind of forget about. Uh, but I found this interesting. The, the question for me when I watch Clayton Kershaw in the first game this upcoming weekend is going to be, does he get into the seventh inning or not? Because it always seems to be his troubles are in the seventh inning. And I think part of that is over the years, the Dodgers just have not had a bullpen any manager has been able to trust. Sometimes he's been on three days rest. Uh, Kershaw, for his postseason career, has a 463 ERA. Not great. In the first six innings, he's got a 3.31 ERA, a two or three batting average against. In the seventh innings, or, or beyond seventh or beyond, an 18.25 ERA with a 4.25 batting average. Obviously, that's not so great. If he never threw a seventh in a postseason game, I'm going to give you some examples here. In game one of the 2014 NLDS, he'd have allowed two runs to the Cardinals, not eight. In this year's game one against the Diamondbacks, he'd have allowed two homers, not four. Uh, against the Mets in the first game of 2015, he'd have walked one and allowed three runs, not walked four and allowed uh, three runs. And if uh, he'd only gone six innings against the Nationals last year in game four, he would have allowed two runs, not five. These are big differences, right? And it just kind of seems like he keeps getting pushed out there when he's not really ready to do that. And this goes along with, you know, the theme of this postseason and last of, you know, not letting starters. Granted, this year it's been more about starters getting rocked early. This is not bullpenning. We haven't seen any bullpenning. <laughs> um, at the same time, but this sort of, like you look back and it's sort of like, well, maybe if some of these these thought processes had been in place a few years ago, it would have spared uh, some of Clayton Kershaw's postseason reputation. And it will be, I think it'll be very interesting to see how Dave Roberts handles him if he gets through six innings in a close game and he has pitched well, what kind of leash he, he gives him. Yeah, and I think you're right. Attitudes have changed because you could say, okay, if he'd only gone six innings, then his numbers would have looked a lot better, and that's totally true. But then the counterpoint to that is, well, okay, a great postseason pitcher like Madison Bumgarner, he doesn't need that. You know, he'll go eight innings, and that's fine. Madison Bumgarner is great. But I also think you look at Kershaw and you realize that this is a guy who's had two serious back injuries in the last two years. You know, I don't think it's unfair given that and also given just the way pitchers are used now to say, listen, give us the best six innings you can and get out of there. So I actually looked at his expected weighted on base over the last three years. Uh, in the regular season, the first six innings, 233. That's phenomenal. Uh, in the postseason, the first six innings, 275. That's still really good, and it's not surprising that it's a little worse because you're going to face a lot better offenses in the postseason, right? If he went past the seventh inning in the regular season, 244, basically the same as he was before because if he gets that far, he's obviously pitching really well. In the postseason, seventh inning and beyond, expected weighted on base is 471, which says to me he shouldn't be out there. We saw this in the first game in the uh, divisional series. Uh, I'm looking at his four-seam velocity chart by inning here. In the first couple innings, is 94, 93, 93. By the time he's in the seventh inning, he's throwing like 91.5. And it was pretty clear even before that he was missing high with his slider. He probably should have been yanked after six. He goes out, gives up a line drive out, two home runs, and that's it. So I will say it's pretty hard for me to see that happening again, hopefully, because that, you know, Don Mattingly or Dave Roberts, whoever's been in charge at the time, has never been able to, you know, go out there and say enough is enough. I get that that's probably hard, but it does feel like that's the right thing to do in today's climate. Yeah, but it's, it's you know, there's there's still a certain class of pitchers that's sort of expected to do more, and obviously Kershaw's in that group. And we saw this the other day with Dusty Baker's decision to take out Max Scherzer, which I thought was an extremely defensible oh, absolutely. decision. Especially because he had his hamstring issue. Yeah, like, but like it was after 98 pitches. You know, he, he'd been good, but he, he'd, he'd walk some guys. It wasn't like he'd been like efficient and just mowing people down. So, but still the, the Scherzer-Kershaw class of pitcher, there's still the expectation of like the classic postseason workhorse, you know, give us uh, seven plus eight, perhaps even a complete game, which is just not realistic in the current setup, particularly when you pretty much every team has 
multiple guys who can come in and throw 96. Right. And so that's interesting because over the last couple of years, I think part of the reason this has happened for the Dodgers is because they've never really had that great reliever. I mean, Kenley Jansen, obviously, but they've never really had anyone between the starting rotation and Kenley Jansen. That's been an issue for them forever. And this is how Pedro Baez keeps ending up in these high leverage situations. But I think it maybe is a little different this year. Part of it's because uh, home run the other day aside, Brandon Morrow has been fantastic this year. But I'm really interested in uh, Kenta Maeda as like a secret relief weapon. All right. So Kenta Maeda has spent most of the last two seasons in the rotation. He's generally been pretty good, not a star, but I would say, you know, average to slightly above average. Uh, And he has been pitching in relief. Now, granted, he's only pitched to six batters, but still four strikeouts and a perfect 0 for 6. And what's interesting about this is because Dave Roberts specifically said he is on this roster to get righties out. So I pulled some numbers on this, and I thought this was pretty interesting. He obviously has, uh, you know, not unsurprisingly, he's got a pretty large platoon spit against lefties this year, allowed a 331 weighted on base, so you know, slightly worse than average, and 275 against righties, which is really good. Uh, but look at the strikeout numbers. Against righties, 33% strikeout rate. Against lefties, 18% strikeout rate. That's almost twice as much. That's a 91 to 14 strikeout to walk rate against righties. That's really, really good. And this is my favorite thing that I think I've ever pulled. So I thought to myself, well, 33% strikeout rate against right. I mean, that's that's pretty good. So I wonder how that ranks. So I looked up all 171 pitchers who have faced at least 200 right-handed batters this year. And I looked who had the top strikeout percentage. And for the most part, for the most part, this is a list full of absolute studs. You know, Scherzer's at the top, Sale, you know, Salazar, Kluber, uh, DeGrom, Rich Hill, Kershaw's on this list, Peacock's on this list. Yeah, Kenta Maeda ranks, what is this, sixth, seventh, I think? Seventh on that list. That's really good. Um, I have to take us completely off topic for one second. Denelson LeMay showed up on this list. Now, if you have no idea who that is, I, I completely understand. Um, but apparently our fascination with little-known right-handed San Diego Padres starters continues because Denelson LeMay is apparently... Fantastic against righties. Now he can't get lefties out, and we are not going to start talking about a whole Denelson Lemay, uh, you know, interlude here in October. But I will say, now he's someone I'm going to pay attention to next year because he showed up on this list of amazing right-handed strikeout artists. Anyway, the point is, uh, Kenta Maeda may be an actual legitimate weapon because if you look at the guys he faced in Arizona, I believe in one stretch he, he got through Goldschmidt and J.D. Martinez and got them both out. I mean, that's really impressive. Yeah, that's. I mean, it, it'd be interesting to see how he could get utilized against either of the two lineups. Um, obviously, with the with the Nats, Harper and Murphy are probably their best hitters. So, right, you you wouldn't you know he wouldn't necessarily be as valuable against the meat of their order as he might be against well, other clubs. Zimmerman and Rendon. So I mean, there's yeah. use there, and against the Cubs, would be you know Chris Bryant is obviously uh, their best right-handed hitter. So, um, yeah, I don't think he's despite the fact that he's a starter, he's not someone who's going to come in and give you like the two and a third. But that's not really his role. You know, he can come in and get these right-handed hitters out. And what's interesting is how he's doing it. Um, he's got this. We I kind of combine the cutter and slider here because they're very difficult to tell apart at times. In the regular season, he threw those two pitches 32 percent of the time, and he did so at 84.9 miles an hour. In the postseason, so far, 57 percent of the time. 86.3 miles an hour. It's a perfect example of the difference between being a starter and a reliever when you know you have to come in in short spurts and could just focus on your two best pitches and throw them a little bit harder and a little bit sharper. And, you know, you'll see you'll see Maeda. He can come in and use the fastball and the, the slider, cutter, whatever, and, and use those as his weapons against righties and just dominate. Yeah, and, and not have to worry about what am I going to get to get a lefty out because he's almost certainly never going to face a lefty in a high high leverage spot. Uh, the other Dodger I wanted to focus on here, obviously the Dodgers have so many stars. They've got Kershaw, they've got Turner, they've got everybody, but I don't think Austin Barnes 
uh, their quote unquote backup catcher has gotten enough credit. You know, he actually started sometimes. He might actually be, a, you know, a, a one and one A with the Osmani Grandal at this point. Uh, he is a really interesting guy because not only is he a catcher, he's also playing some second base for them. They got him in the D Gordon trade a couple years ago, and he has been a fantastic hitter. And we think about the best offensive catcher in baseball, and we usually think about Gary Sanchez, which is true. I think he is the best starting catcher offensively in baseball, but Austin Barnes actually outhit him this year. If you look at 62 catchers who had 100 plate appearances this year, Gary Sanchez. Sanchez was second in expected weighted on base at 383. Austin Bonds was first at 392. I mean, he has been a really uh, important weapon, and it would not surprise me at all. He's also a top 10 framer, by the way, if he starts more games than Yasmani Grandal does in the NLCS. Yeah, and to, to the Dodgers' credit, they've sort of found a way to nicely kind of weave him into a regular role, and it hasn't become like a thing because Grandal is the more established player, and they obviously said they found time for him at second base. So they found ways to get him into the lineup, and the Dodgers, you know, have a really deep team and have done a really good job of finding ways to use their whole roster. Yeah, I actually, uh, there's like a, a small part of me that's kind of rooting for a Dodgers-Astros World Series just because that would be like the crowning achievement of the nerds, I think, right? Like you have Andrew Friedman and anxiety on one side, and then obviously the Astros are very famous for just completely blowing it up a couple years ago and bringing in Jeff Lou now. Uh, you know, I, I can't say that any of these potential matchups wouldn't be fun because they'd all be fun. I sort of think that'd be the most fun. It would be the most fun for me because that was my preseason World Series pick. So oh, good I like call. To, uh, well, you smart. know what? I, I picked Cubs, so I guess I got to go Cubs over Astros. Anyway, uh, there's no wrong answer. These are all going to be fun. So we will soon find out who the Dodgers are going to be playing. And then uh, by the time we talk next week, we will be right in the middle of what I hope will be two very entertaining championship series. So that is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Matt Myers over here. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. 